This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, a guide to reading and reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and see all the other classics in that series. Today's conversation is part of our fall series called What We Make of Ourselves. Week by week, we have been working our way through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, identifying how those themes of the 19th century classic have a whole bunch to say to us in life today in the 21st century. And Hannah, when I think about all the things that we're learning in life today, I I keep wondering about where am I going to see Frankenstein pop up? It's like I'm seeing it in conversations and in the news and really because it's the Halloween season. I mean, we see Frankenstein here, there and everywhere. Yes. And it's been interesting the last few weeks to see like a Frankenstein visual or the kind of popular rendering of Frankenstein show up either in decorations or movies. And I have to, you know, I have to be honest, confessional time. I'm enjoying like, oh, that's what you think Frankenstein is? Right. (laughs) Well, have you ever read the novel? He didn't have bolts in his neck. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just enjoying (laughs) this, this Like this whole new understanding and experience of the Frankenstein motif that I have no no clue about. And I will confess my ignorance right there at the beginning. Like six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, I had no clue. If you had asked me whether the green monster with the bolts in his neck and the wife with the tall black hair with the Mm -hmm. white stripe on that, would you say is that an accurate rendering of Frankenstein? Be like, sure, sure. And and I think I knew that like Frankenstein wasn't the monster, that he was the creator right. of the monster. Because because that's like one of those um, you know, those little knowledge tidbits that we we like to pull out of our back pocket. And you're like, Right, well, actually, didn't you know? <laughs> that's not his name. I, I I would agree. I've enjoyed seeing the what we now consider Frankenstein in our modern day with the costumes and so many placements for Halloween. I've enjoyed seeing that and understanding those backstories now that we've worked our way through the novel. And um, I think what's interesting is that the the Frankenstein we think of in pop culture or in modern day, I feel like it's 
it's a flatter representation of what Frankenstein really is. Like, I think, oh, there's so much more there. Like, there's so much in this novel that I, I had missed. I, I'm sad that I didn't know about it all this time. And now I do know of the the heartache and the the wrenching emotion that Victor Frankenstein went through and and this monster that he created this creature that he created so i've really enjoyed it and it's really made a difference in how i'm seeing modern life for sure absolutely and i think one of the things that i've really appreciated and i would have never known if we hadn't read this book was even the shape of the novel um the kind of fact that the central story of Victor creating Frankenstein mm. is within other stories. That yeah. there's this, we've been talking about this frame novel or this kind of nesting of the story of Victor Frankenstein and the creature he has created being a story itself, but actually a story that's meant to do something else within a larger story. So we, um, you know, we began the book with someone named Robert Walton writing yes. to his sister. And I remember at the beginning, I was like, wait a I minute. I was so confused. I was like, who's Robert? And why is he was writing not his sister? <laughs> reading about some explorer heading to the Arctic. Or uh-huh. I, I, I wanted to read about Frankenstein. And so even that kind of put me back on my heels at the beginning in a good way. Yeah. It, it stripped me of my ability to believe I knew what was coming next. Yeah. And, um, yeah, even at the beginning, the themes were really present, you know, themes of ambition and what, um, you know, where does our ambition take us mm-hmm. and the risk of free will and, and you know, all of these questions. And it's just, it's been really exciting to watch the novel play out and know where you are in that nesting. Like, where are we at this point? And I think we're kind of coming up out of it. In yes. this week, in this last section, volume three, chapters five through seven, this last section of the book, we're not only coming out of uh, Victor's Frankenstein's story about his creation of this creature, we're also coming out of Robert Walton's story. Mm-hmm. So we've got two resolutions that we get to this week. Um, and, and that was kind of fun, to be honest. Felt it like really a double was. feature in a way. It really was. There were so many things that were coming out of this last section. And I had that same feeling, Hannah, like as we started reading the the stories and it seemed like we were going deeper and deeper into them. And now it's like we're being sucked back out and seeing that bigger picture. And we're remembering, oh, yes, we're back here with Robert. There's this resolution that's coming. And it's seeing the whole landscape and seeing all of these stories from start to finish now that we have the nesting um, frame coming back out of, I guess, from that very narrow focus into that wide focus again and seeing how they all relate to each other. It's fascinating and brilliant. I mean, really, very shallow. It really is. And, and I think there's this, um, if, if folks can cast their mind back through our series, we actually tried to parallel certain ideas. Um, it, the question of the frame actually goes through our episodes too. So, um, on our first episode, we talked about what we make of our time or ambition. 
and our desire to to make choices that achieve glory. And that's going to be paired with today's episode, uh, which is what we make of destiny and how much do we actually have free will. But within the middle episodes, we kind of paired what we make of our suffering with what we make of our mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then right in the center is what we make of others and then what we make of ourselves or what we make of our own stories. And so there's this interesting kind of two sides of the same coin playing out within the book. And and it's a wonderful opportunity within these episodes to say, okay, at the beginning, we kind of considered the question of ambition and free will. And now we're going to come full circle in resolution, not just of the story, but what is the opposite of that? Like if Mm -hmm. we have free will and ambition or what about our fate? What about our destiny? What about all the things that we can't control? Because that's really what's going on in this last section. Just addressing the small questions of life. Just just, right? small just the small questions. <laughs> well, let's go into the recap for this this reading. If everyone remembers, here's where we are. We we ended reading five with Victor on his way home after his father came and collected him from Scotland area. He had been on this tour with his friend Henry, and Henry has been murdered. Victor was uh, in distraught state, and he's in that feverish state. His father came and collected him, and he is returning home. So in this return, he's wrought with guilt still. We we read a whole lot about Victor's inner world and all his turmoil over losing his friend Henry. And then he also is still ruminating on the deaths of his brother William and Justine, who was wrongly accused of William's murder. So as they're traveling back, he receives a letter from Elizabeth again addressing this issue of are we still going to get married and elizabeth gives him a way out if if that would help with his depression because if you remember no one knows why victor is so distraught and overcome so he gets this letter he has this conversation again with his father and he decides yes let's let's do this thing he says let's get married and he he is heading home in order to have this wedding, and they actually pull it off pretty quick. There, did you notice yeah. that, Hannah? It was like yeah, within well, ten days or something. Multiple, <laughs> like for waiting multiple years, like he, it was amazing that they could find an event. Oh my goodness! In ten days, they got it all but done. <laughs> what's interesting to me about this section with the marriage is that, like Elizabeth gives him this out, and so she's yeah. giving him choice. She's giving him free will. And Victor at this point in the novel has become so trapped in this idea of his fate or his destiny that he doesn't even entertain that question. And there's a quote that actually says, if my cousin would consent, the ceremony should take place in 10 days and thus put, as I imagine, the seal of my fate. And this idea that it's out of my hands, I'm just going to yeah. go along with things. Um, and in some sense, the marriage had been fated for him from childhood. Mm-hmm. It was kind yep. of the expectation. But there's also this layering of the creature kind of giving this foreboding warning. Right. I shall be with you on your wedding night. And Victor thinks that's my fate. This creature is going to come and destroy me the day I get married. So... 
Might as well just get it. May as well just jump on in there. (laughs) It it is a sad way to start a marriage relationship is with the sense of impending doom. I mean, that's not really. I guess so. I guess. May as well. Sure, might as well. (laughs) And, And what's interesting is we see a radically different Victor than the Victor we saw at the beginning of the book, who was very consumed with his own capacity and his own ambition and his own ability to create and um, have this choice and will. And he's now reduced to someone who seems to be carrying, being carried along by fate. Yes. He's definitely in that um, vein of like, well, I guess we're it's going to happen anyway, so we may as well get this thing done and move it forward. The, that, um, that sense of impending doom and... Um, almost like no option, no other option available is what moves them into this wedding. Although there are glimpses of joy um, that are written into how Victor is feeling and his approach to the day, but the wedding does happen. There is joy, but then the gloom returns um, after the wedding. It's it's the wedding day. They're moving to, um, well, they're they're heading to where they're going to spend their their wedding night. Elizabeth is noticing that Victor is becoming more and more agitated and anxious and gloomy again, and she is then distraught, saying, "Okay, we had this great day. We are now married, and yet the depression, the mood, is turning dark again." And that's upsetting, obviously. It's your wedding day. You're not really expecting your uh, your spouse to be overcome like this. And so she addresses this with him. And I love Victor's reply. He says, oh, peace, peace, my love. This night and all will be safe. But this night is dreadful, very dreadful. And that's not really helping. That's not no. setting the mood. No. <laughs> and so and- he's letting her know, yeah, I know I'm upset, but be okay with it because after tonight, this night is dreadful, but I, I think he's hoping maybe tomorrow it's going to be better. I don't know. Well, at this point too, Victor is under the impression that the creature is coming for him. Yeah, for him. And yes. so for some reason, he has interpreted the creature's warning, I shall be with you on your wedding night as I'm coming for you, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to harm you, I'm going to yeah. destroy your happiness. And so he's got this kind of in the back of his mind, and he's not exactly sure how this looming um, threat is going mm-hmm. to play out, but he's pretty sure it's going to play out toward him. Yeah. And so he is distraught. He's there at some sort of an inn or I don't know, some sort of a a hotel sort of a thing. And so Elizabeth retires to the room, but Victor can't. He's he's upset. And so he is pacing the halls. He's checking the, the windows and doors and a scream belts out and he realizes, oh, no, uh, Uh, This is Elizabeth, and he runs to the room to see Elizabeth on the bed, completely mutilated and bloody and dead. And this is another one of those gory parts, Hannah, where I think, oh, this is why people call this a horror story, because it is bloody and and pretty gross. Um, Victor realizes that his wife has been murdered, and as he is frantic... And looking around the room, he sees the creature in the shadows, in the window, and the creature takes off. And then this becomes the rest of the night where Victor is trying to chase down the creature. 
But what we're left with here is that Victor was wrong. His interpretation was wrong. And now Elizabeth is also dead. And, and you know, I kind of, this played out in my head as I was reading it, where he's pacing the hall, he hears the scream, and I, like, have this moment where he pauses and he looks at the camera and he's like, I think I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> yes, yes. This was a terrible mistake. <laughs> and and while I was reading and he kept you know, saying, oh, this is going to be about me. Oh, my Mm -hmm. wedding night. Oh, it's going to be so horrible. I was like, oh, no, my dude, it is not about you. Like literary irony here. Please read. (laughs) Please just project forward. You killed the creature's wife. Ergo, (laughs) what do we do? Fill in the blank. Um, So it was a little infuriating to me as I was reading that he was completely oblivious to the fact of where the plot was going so when we hear elizabeth scream i'm like yeah i could have told you that could have told you that was coming but but i did feel bad for elizabeth oh it's terrible it's just so terrible and victor then turns frantic obviously um and another beloved person has died by this creature's hand and a more loss and and now he's on the hunt trying to find the creature. Um, I, I think it was even the very next morning after searching all night, he realizes he's not going to be able to find him right then and there. So the next morning, Victor returns home, lets his father know that Elizabeth has now also been murdered. And his father becomes so upset, he collapses and within a few days he also dies so victor is left with all this loss and this is really setting him on this course of revenge and vengeance he now realizes the one thing he needs to do is to track down this creature and put an end to it so uh he finds himself at the cemetery and he's he's there at the graves of William, Justine, Henry, Elizabeth, his father. And he is speaking out loud to them his promises of re- enacting revenge and 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 going after this creature. The creature ends up being there in the shadows and mocks him. And it starts this chase between Victor and the creature. And that really takes us through th- this entire story that Robert Walton has been hearing about with Victor explaining to Robert, I've been chasing him on the frozen tundra. I've been trying to track him down. And the whole time that Victor is trying to chase down the creature, the creature is toying with him and leaving him clues and leaving him food and and basically creating a, a trail for Victor to follow. And the two of them are just chasing back and forth back and forth until victor then meets up with robert and uh this is where the story kind of comes up for air and we realize okay now we're all together again in current time right it's that nesting where we've come up for air and what's interesting about this is both uh walton and victor are kind of in parallel circumstances Although Walton is at the beginning of his journey and his mm-hmm. process, um, both Victor and Walton start out their stories with a high level of ambition and 
uh, seeking glory and this free will and the self-reliance, and they're going to accomplish these great things. Well, at this point, we see Victor at the end of his story, having had that drive for ambition completely ruin his life. Mm -hmm. And he is now trapped in what he deems his fate, his destiny. He has to seek out this creature and kill him, that there's nothing else he can do. And this will take all of his life to do it and he will do it. But we also see Walton parallel to him at a very different point. Walton is on board his ship, still trying to go to the Arctic, but he's become encased in ice. Mm-hmm. And his crew are like, yeah, we're done. We don't want to keep <laughs> going. And so there's this tension of Walton of, I'm hearing Victor's story, and I, I'm still in the middle of it. We know this creature is out there. Victor is still bent on it, you know, reaching this creature and destroying him. And yet I've got to make this choice. Do I keep yeah. going toward the Arctic? Or do I do, go back home? And so it's interesting to see these stories come together. And now, as you said, they're being played out in the same time, although the characters are at different points of their personal journey. When we see the conclusion of this story where Victor and Walton are having these conversations, Victor is still very ill. I don't know if everyone's remembering this from the nesting portion, but Victor had come on board Walton's ship and was so sick, um, but was telling the story, his story and the creature's story, um, even though he was falling into feverish states. And by this point, um, Victor is just very, very sick, and Walton can tell that things are nearing the end. Um, and we conclude this this story with Victor dying, and oddly enough, the creature has found the ship and has entered the ship, and the last scenes here are of a conversation between Walton and the creature, and they kind of have it out. Walton calls the creature to account and says that you have done this. The creature then says, oh no, I, I was forced to do this. So there's this play again on destiny and fate and what is causing things to happen. And um, the creature ends up storming off and saying that his life now is purposeless and has no meaning, and he's going to find a place to uh, be done with life and die. And so that's how this story ends. It, it's unreal, the the unwinding of all of this culmination of chasing and killing and and being determined and having vengeance, and yet it all comes to naught. So then we're left with these questions of what do we do with our ambition and destiny. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, 
health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, what struck me within this resolution section, um, tying up the story of Victor and the creature and Walton and his journey, is that both Victor and his creature end up dying. Mm-hmm. And they almost see it as there was no other way this story could end. Yeah. That this was my purpose. This was my destiny. This is what just has to happen. But Walton actually takes a level of agency and determines to do what his crew is asking him. And his crew is asking him to return home. And yeah. he says, okay, I've got to do it. You know, I can't be the one to make these people push through They don't want to do it. So we're going to turn back. And so Walton denies the ambition that led to Victor and the creature's death, Mm -hmm. ultimately, and Mm -hmm. all of this suffering. And and there's this fascinating moment between Walton and Victor that I think kind of summarizes the tension where Victor is on his deathbed. Walton is telling him that they're turning back. And Victor says, you may give up your purpose. But mine is assigned to me by heaven, and I dare not. Mm-hmm. And what Victor is saying is, um, sure, go back if you want to. You can you can turn away from what you've been destined to do, but I won't. I I have been assigned this thing. I will do it. But the irony of that statement is Victor won't be able to do it because no. he's going to die. And he's not going to be able to enact the thing that he says he has been destined to and then that makes you question were you really destined to it like that that's really the trouble i i think the the passion with which he was so certain that this is what his life must be there was no way it was going to be that and yet he he refused to turn and that's really I think the question that comes up, the things that we are so committed to and so determined that this must be the way that it is, if it's to your own demise, how is it that that's, is that the fate then? Is that the destiny? Is that you are going to kill yourself trying? Or is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yes. Like, ha- have you so entrenched yourself in a certain way that you're like, I will go down with this and therefore that will have been what was supposed to happen and i think what walton's choice shows us is no you still have a level of agency even in your ambition Mm -hmm. that your ambition can't be greater than your ability to make decisions within it your Mm -hmm. your wise decisions within it. And and Walton was disappointed. Like he felt a little bit like a failure and he was writing his sister, Margaret, and he's like, ah, so I failed. I'm coming home. I'm a little embarrassed. But the consolation is I'll be able to be with you. And so Robert's like, I will be alive and be with my people. Mm -hmm. And the contrast is that Victor is dead and his people are dead right? because he got locked into ambition, which he then began to read as fate and destiny. And he gave up the ability to make any other choices than the ones he was making. Yeah. When things 
don't go as we thought they would after we've already made a big deal of it being destiny. How do you explain it? (laughs) How do you look at your failures and say, oh, my goodness, that was destiny. Like you feel so good about it. No, typically destiny is when you feel like things have come together properly and you get excited about it. And Victor was so determined to make it work and make it be success that it it ruined him. It led him to death and everyone around him. And that to me is the warning. Are you so consumed that you are going to basically ruin yourself and those you love? Yeah. And I think the temptation uh, with playing the destiny card is, again, you are not taking responsibility for yeah. your choices. And I remember years ago, um, I had a friend who had gotten himself in a little bit of a mess with a woman he wasn't married to. And he was, you know, we were trying to help him through it. And he was like, look, I just walked into the room and she was there and I just knew it was going to happen. It was destiny. And I was like, ah, dude, walk out of the room. Like if you walk into a room and that's the overwhelming read you get, walk out of the room. And, and I think that sense, even within Victor's story of, I have made all these choices I've made a lot of mistakes, uh, but now instead of like really dealing with them, I'm going to feel guilty and then I'm going to blame it on destiny. This was just what was going to happen and now I'm locked in and I will die doing this thing. And, and, And I think for Christians, it presents this question of do we sometimes take the idea of destiny and just maybe put God in there? Oh, definitely. I I was thinking the same thing of how often do we pin things on God and say, oh, God must not want this for me because it's not working, or God has this for me because this door opened or the window opened or the roof came off or whatever it would be. Um, It's this whole idea of, well, now I'm locked in or these things have happened, so this must mean something. And yet there are reasons and we do have choices. And I feel like there's this this need to see the two things working in tandem um, rather than it being all one or all the other. And we can paint ourselves into a really tight corner when we start assigning that meaning without knowing all the details and knowing all of the the web of connections that bring us to a certain point. Yeah, I love that because what you're saying that we begin to assign meaning to something that mm-hmm. we don't actually know about. It, it's a question of us trying to interpret circumstances that are larger than ourselves and almost a level of pride that says I can decide whether this is me being ambitious or this is destiny. And so Victor's even posture to the way he he interprets certain circumstances or gives meaning to the things that are happening is itself a measure of pride to say, Mm. I know what is happening here. I know how this happened and why it's happening. And I wonder if perhaps the tension between free will and destiny or providence or between ambition and destiny really itself is not the question. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe those aren't questions that we're supposed to give meaning to or even 
have the capacity to give meaning to. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about Walton's choice at the end. And it, the book didn't present it this way, but it was fundamentally a choice to respond to the circumstances in which he found himself with love. Mm-hmm. And, and he had this ambition and he wanted to accomplish these things. And he was caught in the ice. So he's caught. This is, you know, your metaphor of all your circumstances. <laughs> he's trapped. Mm-hmm. The people around him are asking to go back. And at the end of the day, he doesn't make his decision in light of, do I have free will or is this my destiny? He doesn't mm-hmm. center his own sense of either agency or destiny. What he centers is, I need to love my crew well, and I need to turn back because of them. And I wonder if there's just a whole lot of things that happen in our lives that we're not supposed to wonder, is this me acting out of agency? Is this my destiny? And maybe what we're called to is just to respond to our life and our circumstances with love. That is so helpful because if we take this situation of the ship caught in ice here here is how i have felt and here are how i've heard conversations from others when they are in similar situations your ship is caught in ice and the question becomes am i stuck here so that i learn perseverance and i just need to keep moving forward because god has me here and it means this or Is it that I'm stuck here because of, let's say, sin or bad decisions, and therefore I need to make the best of it because it's my own fault? Or if God will break the ice, is that the sign that I should turn back and he's rescued me? Like you can make yourself absolutely, completely unhinged (laughs) because you're trying to sort out what does all this mean? Whereas I like what you're proposing, Hannah. What is the loving course of action here and do that in that moment. And I think that that alleviates a lot of the the internal turmoil and suffering that comes with just living life because we're going to be stuck in the ice plenty in our lives and right. we've got to learn how to sort that out. And and I want to make, you know, this caveat as well that the loving response isn't necessarily the response that just does what other people want. Like sure. the mm-hmm. loving response might be that you push forward in your vocation or your calling because you need to better yourself and you need to serve the church in a certain way or serve your people in a certain way. Um, that your service to them means that you would serve them better if you develop yourself in a certain mm-hmm. way. But that's very different than saying, I'm going to develop myself in a certain way for glory or I'm going sure. to accomplish certain things for glory. Versus I'm going to commit myself to science and I'm going to learn things and I'm going to be good at what I do. And then I'm going to use that to serve other people. So I don't want to give the impression that the idea that love compels our actions means that we just become um, dependent on what everybody else wants and we lack agency in that respect. Yeah, that's a good call. But But the point is whatever choices we're making. I don't think that the fundamental questions revolve around our free will, our destiny. I think it revolves around where has God placed us and how do we love well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And 
I feel like that's a really good note to wrap up this part of our discussion. We've worked all the way through Frankenstein, all the sections. We've talked it all out, but we still have one last episode. We have a finale we on the are, books. We so are exciting. not done yet. We are no, not we're done not. yet. Stick with us. We've got <laughs> one great episode left where we get to make sense of it all with a guest. Yes, we are so thrilled to prep you ahead of time. We have a guest on the books, Karen Swallow Pryor, will be joining us for the finale. And we so look forward to discussing some of these themes with her and getting insight because she's the one who uh, paired up her uh, her professional notes and teaching of Frankenstein to create that reading guide for the B&H Publishing Group Edition. So we're so excited. Hope you'll yep. uh, join us again next week. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC or in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum and bring us your hot takes on Destiny and ambition and agency and providence and free will and all of these wonderful things because it's not like we don't talk about that enough, right? That's right. That's right. Well, we want to give a shout out to Jonathan Clausen. He's our producer and he produces all the shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com or search for them at iTunes. Thanks so much to all of you for listening to Persuasion and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.